This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. This is God's word. Amen. Imagine yourself there, and try doing that for a moment. Imagine yourself there, wrapped in a towel, half sipping on a warm beverage, half talking to your buddy who's also been baptized and now towel-wrapped. Maybe you're chatting a little bit about how this guy John is dressed in some type of hairy garment and wondering if he's ever gotten a date in his life. Maybe you're then half watching, and likely doing so, half watching the next person coming forward to get dunked in the river. That's a lot of halves, (laughs) so that math doesn't quite add up. But you can understand only reserving part of your attention to the man who would decisively alter human history for the next two millennia because of how he arrived on the scene. Like any other baptism candidate, Mark describes him as a mere man who seems to casually walk onto the set. He doesn't even know exactly when. Rather, he says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. At this point, this Jesus is just another man worth at best A little glance out of our peripheral vision as we continue in a conversation with a friend of ours. But then something happens as he comes out of the water. There is, the best way to describe it, a meeting of the gods. One God and three distinct persons. God the Holy Spirit descends upon this man. And God the Father expresses his approval. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Seeing God's Spirit and audibly hearing God the Father's voice should get your attention at this moment, break you out of the conversation you're having, and it does. That's where we begin. Mark starts his Gospel telling us that this is the beginning of the good news The gospel about Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. So Mark gets to work, passing 
onto us historical data that progressively starts to suggest, as we read it, we encounter Jesus, progressively suggests that Jesus from Nazareth isn't just another man to have pay attention to, but a God to be trusted. We looked at Jesus' baptism last week, which boldly painted the picture of a coronation ceremony. Jesus anointed and commissioned to be the member of the Godhead who brings order to the formless and the void of human life. We also saw last week through his temptation that Jesus was appointed to defeat evil without defeating us. And this week, we take a U-turn. We saw that Jesus is God appointed and God anointed. So we take a U-turn to examine the means by which we might be the plus one in the eternal love relationship. How we might participate in what C.S. Lewis calls the divine dance of the gods. How we might be involved in this kind of love. It is because Jesus is also God-giving. God anointed, God appointed, but He's also God-giving. In verse 8, John summarizes this point saying, I have baptized you with water. But He, this one to come, the one you're going to meet in a minute, who you think is just a normal man, that's going to change. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, baptize comes from a root word meaning to dip, to immerse, to plunge. That's the simplest way to think about it, friends. Is John is going to get people ready by immersing people into something largely symbolic. Jesus will take all who trust their lives to Him and plunge them into God. God the Holy Spirit. The image is one of, of dipping a candle into wax. right? Being covered. Or, or taking vanilla ice cream and dipping into chocolate, forming one of those scrumptious dove bars that you like so much and you see in those commercials. Right? That is this kind of image we're supposed to be given here. That through Jesus and trusting Him, we are actually dipped in to God, covered then by Him. Covered with God the Holy Spirit. Such a covering takes place upon trusting your life to Jesus and has wide-ranging and incredibly helpful implications for the life we live. Let's look at those here for a moment. By being covered with God, the Holy Spirit, you are provided with power. The Holy Spirit provides power. A God-given ability to do for the glory of Jesus Christ what on your own you could not do. The Holy Spirit also provides performance. Admittedly, I'm just going to go with a bunch of P's here. All right, so if you don't like the wording, it's because I'm trying to get a bunch of P's. All right, he provides power, he provides performance, the impartation and energizing of spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. So he gives each of us gifts. When you trust Jesus, Holy Spirit comes inside of you, gives you gifts unique to each one of us to help build one another up, to serve one another. He provides purity to make us more like Jesus. Holy Spirit begins to purify our motives and our actions. He progressively delivers us from the pollution of sin in our lives. 
Right? He's like litter control in there, getting things, dumping them out, cleaning things away. And He produces fruit through us. He provides presentation. He presents through us truth about Jesus. He presents who Jesus is clearly through us, even though we might start stumbling over our words at first. The Holy Spirit works in us and through us to make what we are saying, which oftentimes might, we might walk away thinking, I don't even know what I said. But He works through us to make it clear to people who Jesus is and what He has done in our lives. And finally, He provides presence an assurance that we belong to Jesus and he helps us get to know him better in that. There's some references, scripture references up on the screen which you can write down. But You might notice a trend here. I hope you do. The Holy Spirit wishes. It is his consuming passion to bring honor, to bring love, to bring attention to and put the spotlight on Jesus. He wants to just basically take a big old highlighter and highlight wherever Jesus is, wherever there's potential for Him to be, wherever there's thoughts that are stirring about Him. He wants to take a highlighter and say, Jesus, there He is. Do you see Him? I'm going to show Him to you. That's what He longs to do. So the sermon in a nutshell this morning, you're going to hear this theme over and over. Jesus gives God to empower us to speak and show Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus gives us God the Holy Spirit to empower us to speak and to show Jesus as the Son of God. So you're going to hear again and again that theme, speak and show Jesus. Holy Spirit inside of us to speak and show Jesus. Because on the one hand, we do, we're going to do this on the one hand because we can't seek Jesus without the help, the influence, the energizing of God inside of you. You can't do it on your own. Yet on the other hand, God inside of you isn't primarily to be a kind of lapdog, to be sought for the warm fuzzies of life, or provide you with enough lightning bolt moments so you can be sure, for sure, that God is real. That is not His primary purpose for living inside of us. The Holy Spirit... God covering those who trust Jesus, He is ours for others. He is ours to be shared. Ours to be given away so that others can see Jesus highlighted. Always ours for others. As mentioned previously, the Holy Spirit is given to you upon trusting your life to Jesus. However, the Bible does speak about times and seasons of filling of God the Holy Spirit in your life. Where like a balloon, and that's the best analogy I can compare it to, the Holy Spirit is always present. Right? When you have a balloon, there's always air in that balloon. But it has the ability to expand and contract. Similarly, the Holy Spirit's always present in us, but has this expanding and contracting in us throughout our lives. Read with me Ephesians 5, 18-21, what the Apostle Paul says about this. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. The Lord is always Christ in the New Testament. 
with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice first, the emphasis again is on speaking and showing Jesus to encourage the body of Christ. Offer words of truth and praise to, say it with me, Christ. <laughs> right? Giving thanks to the Father using the name of Lovingly submit to one another because you revere. There he is. You're doing it now. <laughs> so first we see that it's, it's to revere, to show Christ, this filling of the Holy Spirit. But to command even to be filled necessitates that Christians, like a balloon, can leak. You can get low, if you will, in the Spirit. So how is someone then filled with the Spirit? If you want God inside you and to fill you from the inside out, how does one get filled? I take this from who was a guy who's kind of a mentor in this area for me who's very solid biblically but really knows pneumatology, a love and an adoration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Dr. Sam Storms, um, who's a pastor back in the U.S., former professor at Wheaton, used to preach at my old vineyard church back in the day. Um, first of all, he recommends this, to confess sin. If you want this sort of filling of the Spirit from the inside out, confess sin ASAP with God and others because sin grieves the Holy Spirit. There's one thing that grieves the Holy Spirit inside you, we are told explicitly in Scripture, and that is sin. But not just any kind of sin. Read this with me, Ephesians 4, 29-32. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. You notice here, Paul says a specific kind of sin tends to grieve the Holy Spirit. Corrupting speech, bitterness, lack of forgiveness towards those in the body of Christ. The words we use, the grudges we hold on to, the lack of speaking forgiveness towards those in the body of Christ. It's this horizontal sin towards others that specifically grieves the Holy Spirit. Confess that. Do you build up or bring low with your words towards other people in the body of Christ? Are you holding on to bitterness because you've been wronged or slighted? Or hold on to a sense of like entitlement, a sense of you call entitlement, but which really anger towards people who haven't really forgiven you or haven't really reached out to you? This kind of thing grieves the Holy Spirit. Uh, secondly, ask for a fill-up. All right, Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen that if you, being a father or a parent, even though you are evil, give gifts to your children, how much more will God the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him for the Holy Spirit? Now, we should note here, Jesus is not speaking about not yet believers, but already the children of God. He will give these things to his children. In other words, this is not 
the first time baptism, when we first trust Jesus and he gives us the Holy Spirit, but a children of God already having faith in Jesus, asking for the Holy Spirit, pleading with him for the Holy Spirit. I think it's intentionally vague here. He's not saying, give me the Holy Spirit so that I might do miracles or give healing or whatever. But just give me the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus, in whatever form you would have it. But thirdly, keep seeking Jesus and just content yourself for whatever he gives. It's noteworthy that nowhere is it indicated that anyone in Acts or elsewhere ever asked to be filled with the Holy Spirit or empowered the Holy Spirit. No indication of that. It's a sovereign work of God as people seek Jesus. As they respond to Jesus' love with obedience, God just decides to fill people further. Come back to this here at the end. So we learn about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit does. Power, presence, performance, presentation, purity. We learn how through us, the Holy Spirit wants to take a highlighter to all things Jesus, show it to the world around us. How then does this, does this John the Baptist dude fit in? How does John the Baptist dude fit in? Let's talk about this. John the Baptist, the unintentional rock star. This is what this guy is. John knew his role. He knew what he was called to do in relationship to Jesus, but he becomes something much bigger than he intended. Let's read about John's role. You can read about it in verses 2 and 3. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The best way to illustrate John's role is in relationship, in relationship to Jesus by way of a regular routine for renters in Cayman. All right. So how many of you, especially those of you who rent, uh, have a bug guy? All right, or a pest control person who comes by once a quarter or so. Raise your hand. If you have a bug person, pest control, come by once a quarter. Okay. I feel some of you don't even raise your hand. That's very sad. You should really get that in your lease agreements. Just that's, a, that's, that's free. I'm just giving you that as a tip. Like ask for that next time it comes around. It, it, it can happen for you. <laughs> Our experience the first three years of living here is the bug guy, the pest control dude or, or lady, I don't know, I haven't met the pest control lady yet. There's probably, probably out there. Uh, would come by unexpected. All right, they just kind of drop in. Uh, and so, without preparation. Now, Katie and I both have jobs. All right, in fact, she has like three jobs. Because in addition to being married to me, which is a job in of itself, just me, personally, she's also a pastor's wife, which there's less like, I'm just, I can't even describe that in the time I have remaining in the service. You know, so we try to work, try to love our kids, we try to make times for each other, and as a result, something has to sometimes give um, to their times when food, dishes, toys are left out, overnight even. I know that's shocking to some of you, like, my gosh, are you really a Christian who has his life together? I don't know, probably not, no, I'm, I'm really relying on the grace of Jesus, but, so when the bug guy comes by, 
we aren't as prepared, right? There's more stuff in his way that prevents his magic spray from doing the work it needs to do. The spray he claims is, you know, poison-free. It won't hurt children, just, you know. But at the same time, please evacuate the building, <laughs> right, just for this time being. <laughs> Recently, this new bug guy, he came by, and he gave us two days' warning he dropped by my office with a card that had a time on it. So he prepared me. He, Here's the time I'm going to come. So I was able then to clean up and be prepared when he came. Right? So the effectiveness of his magical spray was wider and quicker. In and of itself, putting away toys and plates may temporarily help get rid of bugs, but those bugs are still on the walls, right? They're still creeping somewhere. But this is John. Through his baptism, he prepares people for the guy who can actually get rid of the infestation of sin. John's preparation isn't a solution, but he prepares the way for the solution to take quickest effect. He just cleans it up a little. So when the solution comes, wider and quicker. John himself acknowledges, I am not the solution, people. After me comes one who is mightier than I, he says. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Yet despite knowing his role and Jesus' far superior plan after him, John, and not Jesus, is the rock star of their generation. This is interesting. If you were in that time you probably would have met far more disciples and fans and groupies of John. We learn in verse 5 that everyone who is anyone is making the trek to the middle of nowhere to see John the Baptist. All the country of Judea, all Jerusalem are going out to him. It's hard for me to describe how unusual this is because Judaism consisted of so many tiny sects during this time. Epitomized, by the way, by Jesus' disciples. You're from so many backgrounds of Judaism. I'll give you some at the time. You had the sellouts, you had your zealots, you had your Essenes, your Pharisees, your Sadducees, your teachers and scribes, and your priests. And they agreed on very little. So for all Judea and all Jerusalem to go out and see this man... You've got to think like Republicans and Democrats, all cheering, just loudly standing, ovation for the same person if you're American. Think Labor Party and Conservative Party renting a timeshare together for a week if you're British. All Comanians driving across the island for the same event during a downpour of rain, right? Which doesn't happen, all right? I know because Comanians often joke with me about that. You don't see these things. And his rock star status shows up here and is preserved at least five to ten years, it seems, after his tragic death. When Herod Antipas hears about Jesus, he thinks it's John resurrected. That's his first thought. Oh, it's John the Baptist. He's probably resurrected from the dead. When Jesus asks his disciples, and we'll read this later in Mark, who people says he is, survey says, number one answer, John the Baptist. Number two answer, Elijah, who's compared to John the Baptist. And this goes on. Now, this is important. Uh, first, I want to address something about something important John's popularity teaches us. Then I'll suggest what really brought people on a day's journey 
to first witness this John. John's popularity can actually help instruct us about a common misconception about baptism with the Holy Spirit. As the good news about Jesus is spread mostly north and west, and we read about this in the book of Acts, we also witness uh, his message, the message of the gospel, encountering nothing short of what I once heard John Piper call the cult of John the Baptist. And that's what it was at this point. It became a, what we would call a cult. Kind of like a little bit about Jesus, but mostly about this guy. Let's read about this in Acts 18, 24 through 26. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew about the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. All right? But what happens here is people started to, you know, they knew John, they loved John, they saw Jesus as an extension of John's ministry, like an add-on to John's ministry. And they, Priscilla and Aquila, take this man aside and say, no, 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 you're, you're, you're mistaken. Here's what's really happening. Now this goes on in verse 19, but I want to address this first. Um, one non-heretical, Means it's not a heresy, but I think is, frankly, misguided. Teaching out there suggests that sometime after trusting Jesus, you can receive a second baptism called baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is either usually or necessarily accompanied by speaking in tongues. Okay? And if this is incorrect, that you can trust Jesus, and then later you ask the Holy Spirit to come inside of you in a special way, and that gives you this sort of second baptism of the Spirit. If that's true, or sorry, if that's incorrect, but believed, it's dangerous. Why? Because people who don't experience or show powerful manifestations of the Spirit doubt if God is pleased with them, or if they have enough faith. What if I'm not seeing miracles? What if I'm not speaking in tongues? What if I'm not you know, experiencing these things that I see people on TV experience? Makes them doubt. Am I really following Jesus with a passion, with a single-minded devotion? Secondly, it creates two tiers of Christians. Those who are spirit-filled and those who are not. He's a Christian, but is he or she a spirit-filled Christian? I said, if there's any other kind. Most of Acts chronicles people trusting Jesus, and immediately and evidently the Holy Spirit fills that person. Okay, now there's Acts 19, arguably the most widely used evidence for baptism with the Holy Spirit as a second experience. We just read about this person mistaken about John. Acts 19 goes on to say this. Read with me in verses 1 through 7. It happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country. He came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, like the bug guy getting you ready for Jesus to come, telling the people 
to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus, to trust Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. If we didn't see the rise in endurance of John's popularity, it would be easy to conclude, okay, first there's trusting Jesus, and then there's this experience of Holy Spirit baptism after you know Jesus, after you trust him. But we've got to take into account that so many devout Jews throughout Palestine used Jesus as an extension of John's ministry instead of John as this small little precursor, this little yield sign pointing to the God-giving ministry through Jesus. You see that here? That John's imparting the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a clear line in the sand. What you had before was fancy preparation. Jesus is God. He came to give you God. And notice even in verse 5 here, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Once they understand that Jesus is the God to be trusted, he's the God you get to know, that's when the Holy Spirit comes. Boom. They weren't Christians before that. The highlight of this passage then isn't Holy Spirit baptism, but the difference between John and Jesus. Jesus is the one. Jesus gives you the Holy Spirit then so that through you he can spotlight Jesus as the Son of God. The Holy Spirit can spotlight Jesus as the Son of God. For some of you that might be confusing. For some of you that might be more applicable. But what brought people on a day's journey through the desert to first witness John? I think very little of it was his baptism. The actual being dunked in the water the actual repenting. But it's what John's appearance, baptism, and message all rolled into one represented to a Jewish person. And it's the key to understanding Jesus' primary purpose of baptizing us with the Holy Spirit or immersing us in God. And what we're going to find is what John represented. Everything he represented, and his whole message, is all about Jesus. And it starts actually back in the Old Testament. This is pretty cool. John the Baptist reminded people of the Old Testament prophet Elijah and his most famous miracle. Mark says as much about Elijah here in verses 2 and 3, which we already read, which not only Isaiah speaks, but this is also some of the last words of the Old Testament. In Malachi, for instance. Malachi Chapter 3, verse 1, I'm just going to read this to you, where he says, this is the last book in the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Behold, chapter 4, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord. Elijah is represented by John the Baptist. How would they have known this? Because of John's appearance, because of his baptism, because of his message. All right, first of all, they would have known that John the Baptist was like Elijah in his greatest miracle because this guy was dressed really weird. All right? I mean, look at this in verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. So just imagine camel hair all over this person with a leather belt <laughs> strapped around us. It. it almost makes it weirder that he has a, like a leather belt, like something normal with like just 
camel hair everywhere. Like a character out of that like Star Wars bar scene. It just looks very strange. And this would have reminded people about Elijah. In 2 Kings 1, the king's messenger come to, to the king who's reigning at that time. And they mention meeting a prophet on the way back to the king. He delivers this dire prophecy. And the king asks, wait a minute, what did that man look like? And they say, well, you know, he, he, has, he was really hairy and um, he had this belt on. And, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite, he said. I know who that is. Elijah the Tishbite. So for the Jewish people at this time, to hear about a man in the wilderness wearing the same attire, they would have thought, oh, camel's hair, belt, wilderness. It's the promised Elijah, the one who's supposed to come and prepare the way. Here's the rock star. Let's go see him. It's a little bit like, and I want to get the kids to participate. We have our kids in the service for the last time this week. All right, if you see this image of mouse ears, who do you think of? Who's that? I didn't hear that. Was that uh, Roger Rabbit, Donald Duck? Mickey Mouse, very good. Thank you. Someone had to get that right. I appreciate that. I heard Mickey Mouse, absolutely. If you see this image of a red velvety hat with white trim, who do you think of? Santa Claus, that's right. And if you see a single shiny silver glove, who do you think of, kids? Michael Jackson. Oh, good. Michael Jackson, that's right. Because John is dressed this way, People immediately think, this would have immediately been, oh my goodness, this is the guy. We've been waiting for this guy for 400 years. Let's go see him. But not just because of that, that they want to see this rock star. Because John the Baptist did or mention two parts of Elijah's most famous miracle of water immersion, immersing in water, and immersing in fire. What do I mean by that? While he was alive, Elijah was alive, God's people lived under a wicked king named Ahab and a wickeder queen named Jezebel. They turned nearly the entire nation to spiritually flirt and then cheat on God with a different God named Baal. We see this in 1 Kings 18. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to summarize the story. Elijah calls all the people and the prophets of Baal. 450 of these prophets out to the wilderness. All right, come out here. To the Thunderdome, because we're going to do something out here, middle of nowhere. And he says, prophets and people of Israel, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But don't be lukewarm. Don't limp between these opinions, between the world and Yahweh. So he performs a test to say, let's find out who is really God? And the Baal prophets set up an animal sacrifice. All right, sort of in the, the middle of the Thunderdome area there. I'm just calling it the Thunderdome. If you look in the Old Testament, there isn't something called the Thunderdome, but that's what I imagine. People just gathered around. In the middle, you had this sacrifice. And they call on their God, Baal, to light the sacrifice on, fo- on fire. That was the deal. If he's real... He can light this sacrifice on fire on his own. You don't need any, any lighters, any torches. don't need the stones to set the spark. And so prophets of Baal get to work. They cry out from morning until noon. 
to their God. Light them on fire a lot. They try all kinds of things to the point of even hurting themselves so that their God would take notice. But he doesn't. Elijah's turn. He doesn't just set up a sacrifice. He takes oversized jars and douses the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, immerses them, what baptizes them with water. And he repeats that three times. Just for just so you know, it's not like a magic, it's not like fake water, like you, you know, like the Harlem Globetrotters, if you're familiar with them, used to do like fake water, and it's just like little strands of shiny things, and it's not real, it's an illusion. Three times takes water, and all these jars douses them, calls out to Yahweh. Yahweh rains fire, consuming the sacrifice and licking up all the surrounding water. People then fall on their faces and say over and over, Yahweh, he is God, he is God. Now, both Matthew and Luke in their accounts have John the Baptist saying about Jesus Christ, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is saying this, this is the time The same God who can bring fire is here in the flesh. The real God. So here's the point. Jesus not only gives you God, but he immerses you in God primarily for the purpose of helping others see that the Jesus in you is the real God to be trusted. He gives you God to show a generation with a 450 to 1 ratio of secular to Christian prophets. To show that Jesus is greater than the majority. He's greater than what everyone else says. Even though there's 450 of them compared to one of you, you have the Holy Spirit, the real God, and you to, to, to set this place on fire. Show them Jesus. He gives you God to speak and show Jesus to a generation who limps between two opinions. The opinion of, but I can be the center of my universe and still love God. I can be the center of my universe and live for this pure passion and higher pleasure to center my life around? So many people, friends, in our workplaces, our neighbors, have spent the morning to noon of their lives reaching out for other solutions, other number ones in their lives, other gods to fill them up, and are like the prophets of Baal, hurting themselves. And Jesus immerses you with God the Holy Spirit to tell them with your mouths and show them with your lives that Jesus is the God who comes through in the clutch and he can be trusted as such. When Jesus talks about God, the Holy Spirit, that will live inside everyone who trusts him, it's for the purpose of showing others that Jesus is the true God. In John 16, he says, the Spirit will bring glory to me by taking what's mine and making it known to you. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, He ends that phrase by saying, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. How is Jesus with us always? Through the Holy Spirit. The last thing Jesus says while on this earth before he ascends to heaven in Acts 1, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He focuses on witness to Jesus, witness to Jesus like Elijah, like John the Baptist, we are to make a way for the real God, to make a way for the Holy Spirit inside of us to draw people to Jesus as we speak about him, as we show him to others. 
For those of you who have trusted Jesus, I just want to plead with you to plead with God to work in and speak through you with power so that you might show off Jesus to others. You might highlight Jesus to others. The Holy Spirit will assure you and remind you you're a family member of God, even through warm fuzzies and powerful experiences. The Holy Spirit will help you fight against invisible and violent powers and principalities. He can enable you even to speak in a personal prayer language. But when such personals become priorities, we begin to start to use God for our own pleasures and purposes. I think Jesus hit the nail on the head when he says in John 7, 37-39, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. And then as the scriptures have said, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will come rivers of living water. John goes on to say, he said this about the Spirit who those who believed in him were to receive. In other words, when you come to Jesus, and you seek Jesus, and you seek to highlight Jesus, rivers of living water. God gives us himself, but he's ours for others. Don't hold on to him like a personal pet to be stroked. May we never become a church who uses God, but a a church whom God uses. There's plenty of God to go around. Rivers, in fact. His love isn't an exclusive two-way street, but a dance, so invite others into it. I want to supply for you an example, a couple examples of what this intensification of the Holy Spirit should look like in our lives. I'll close with these examples. One day, um, Dwight L. Moody had an experience where the Spirit just from inside of him began to fill him. Dwight Moody is a famous evangelist, lived back in the 19th century, Here's what he said happened to him. One day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to sharing the good news again. The message was no different. I didn't present any new truths, yet hundreds were converted. That's the point, friends. Why does God do that in us? Give us that special experience and power of the Holy Spirit, this filling, so that we might highlight and show Jesus to an onlooking world. I had my own experience of this this past Thursday. Um, On my way home, just started, I've I've been preparing my sermon all day, and then singing with the CD player, All Creatures of Our God and King by the David Crowder Band version of that. and Since God's Spirit inflating inside of me where every word became a pure um, offering, a pure word dedicated to Jesus, um, I can't explain it any further. Since the Spirit in a powerful way, love welling up in me that I had to pull over on the side of the road because I was in tears. In fact, I got pulled into an apartment complex and just kept singing until I heard a honking of a horn. I thought, yes, Lord, I'm here. What do you want me to do? And I realized I was parked in somebody's spot for their apartment. So I was, that truly actually really did happen. I was like, this, that, that focused and, and that pure. But why? I thought, why, Lord? Why did you give me this experience now? Why I could have used it during my sermon prep. I come to find out that I would need this special feeling of the Holy Spirit to speak and show Jesus when I got home. And an old friend 
of ours had significantly disturbed my family. It was nothing permanent, but I knew it was on me to respond to this sort of disturbance. And my typical response when someone's hurt someone I love and I know is to, you know, at best dismiss the incident but grow bitter towards that person, but at worst lash out in anger. It was crystal clear because of the car ride home. The Holy Spirit wanted me to speak and show Jesus is God. And I remembered back to our spring series, You, Me, and Peace. One way to promote forgiveness is to replace feelings with actions. If you don't feel like you want to forgive someone, you do something for them. You do something in love for them. So I did for that offending person what only God, the Holy Spirit, could give me power to do. And it was God. Because I know I wouldn't have done it all myself. And guess what happened? Jesus was highlighted. May we do the same with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's pray. Father, there are some of us here who want the Spirit to fill us more, and we would ask for that. And Father, we ask it for the purpose of being able to speak and show Jesus to an onlooking world, to know Jesus better, to show him to others. Father, there are some here also who want to walk with Jesus, but keep him at a safe distance. And when they're going to say, Jesus, let's walk together. You can help guide me, but let's not hold hands because I don't want you to do anything too radical. And I think all, what you have to say this morning is, good luck with that. <laughs> when you seek Jesus, the Holy Spirit will come into your life and do things you never imagined could happen and bring great glory to you, Jesus, in doing so. And Father, there are some here who have not yet trusted Jesus, but were invited by someone they respect. Maybe they met someone in their life who seems different. They've heard someone speaking about a God who seems too good to be true, one who would even give salvation for free, help them see that it's not them, but it's the God in them. He's trying to show them Jesus. He's trying to show you Jesus. A Jesus who is worthy to be trusted as your God. Father, all of this must happen through the Holy Spirit. So we humbly ask for his filling, for his power, and that Jesus would be highlighted through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.